Good morning, Creekside. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to open the word with you this morning. Um, I'm going to start by um, asking you a question. What is that thing that you uh, remove from its original packaging and then think you're going to be able to keep stored back in that packaging again at the end, okay? So for me, first thing that comes to my mind is the Christmas tree, okay? We went, we went fake Christmas tree as soon as we got married, and you get it in the box, and you're like, this is a nice big box. This will, of course, fit easily back into it, but in January, you're packing that thing up. You're just like, literally how? Like, how was this thing in here? So I have spent a few years of getting the tree back in the box, but it's always like bulging, and there's duct tape across the top, and it just does, never fits like where you need it to. So we went with the Christmas tree bag shortly after that. Um, Christmas lights are the same thing, right? It should fit in the box. It never does. It's always bulging out of that thing. Sleeping bags. I've owned several sleeping bags where it's just like, what were you guys thinking with the bag uh, size of this? Tents are the same way. So you, you get something in the packaging originally. You pull it out and you're just like, man, this, this should fit back in there. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because last week, we're, we're following along in the life of Jesus Last week, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, asking him questions about his, his, he and his disciples and their practice of fasting. They weren't fasting in the way that the, the Pharisees wanted, and so they're asking Jesus about it. And Jesus' answer was all about um, wine and wineskin. So he says, uh, like with me, uh, like me coming here, I'm like the new king, and there's like this, um, I'm like a new wine that's coming, and you wouldn't try to keep it in the old wineskin. It, it ruins the whole thing. So Jesus invites them to think of it like there's something new. And so with Jesus, he's like that thing that you pull out of the box. There was this neat packaging with the Old Testament. There was all this that was coming through, but Jesus is saying, oh, there's something new that's happening with me, and, and you can't keep putting me back into that old box again. Um, I find that helpful because I feel this tendency to put Jesus back into the old box. Uh, try to get him to fit in, but he's saying there's always something new. There's always something different. There's always something bigger with Jesus than our categories um, seem to allow for. So last week, fasting was the thing that, that was creating some tension with Jesus. All they're doing is asking questions. They're just like, hey, why aren't you fasting in the same way? We're going to get another question, and then it's going to intensify with the Pharisees. There always, they're always is this conflict, and we're going to keep seeing that mount as we go. So uh, this morning, Mark chapter 2, we are going to end chapter 2, and we're going to dive into Mark chapter 3, and I just want you to appreciate how, how much progress we're making as we go through here, okay? We're getting there. We are getting there. So uh, first off, we're going to read in uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, uh, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so here's Jesus and his disciples. Just picture them traveling, going through someone's grain field, and they're doing like, um, they just need a snack or something. So they're picking the grain, they're kind of uh, clearing off the junk off of it, and they're eating it. Okay, it's like the original trail mix, I imagine. They just needed a snack as they're going, and, um, and they do that. So but, they, but the, the Pharisees see that, and they're like, uh, Jesus, can you explain to us what's going on here? Um, and so they, they're questioning the fact that it's happening on the Sabbath, okay? So Jesus is uh, being questioned, like, you guys aren't keeping the Sabbath in the way that you should. So let's jump back to what the Sabbath was intended to be. If you were here over the summer while I was uh, gone uh, all over creation and, and resting and all that on my sabbatical— uh, Nathan led you guys in reflecting on the Sabbath. So you have, a, you have some framework for the beauty of Sabbath as a day of rest. The, the reason this whole thing was set up was God, in, in, in the beginning of the Bible, 
God is there and he's creating the world, okay? And he's just speaking like the world into existence. Let there be light and there's light, right? And he begins separating light and darkness. And then there's, there's water and there's land. And then there's animal life that comes popping up and plant life. Finally, God, um, uh, the, the culmination of it all is on day six, he creates human beings in, in his image, breathes his life into these uh, living beings. And uh, so that's God in six days creating literally everything. So he's like job well done, literally everything that's ever existed he did in six days, and then God rested, okay? God, I don't believe, was tired. Um, he has like infinite energy and power, but definitely that's a well-earned rest. And God um, just sets, establishes this whole thing, this picture of, I did everything that needs to be done, and now I am sitting back and resting and saying, it's good. Like that's, that's what needed to happen. I'm good. I'm done. He finished from all of his work. So that's kind of like where we get the idea of the Sabbath is the seventh day as a day to, to rest and take some time away from it all. Then we get to the Ten Commandments. So God has, um, God's people have been living in slavery for 400 years. God sends Moses to lead them out of slavery. And as they come out of slavery, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are things like, have no other gods before me, but also things like don't murder, don't commit adultery. And in there is a law uh, about the Sabbath. And so in Deuteronomy 5, he says, this is how it's phrased, on the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. And, and here's the reason, so that your servants may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there. So the command is following the precedent of God. He worked in six days and rested on the seventh. And so the, the command is given to them, like, hey, I want you guys also to follow this rhythm where you're investing yourself, you're working hard for six days, and the seventh day is a day of rest. And the reason it gives is so that um, you can have rest on that day, you and your servants with you. There's going to be a day where we're not trying to get everything done, a day where you're resting, a day where you're recovering, because there was a time, he says, when you were a slave in the land of Egypt. So slaves, you don't get to rest. You just working whatever, like whatever your master's telling you, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it. So he's saying, take time intentionally to step aside from the work and remember. Um, it's basically remembering your creator. Stop striving, stop working so hard, and step back. It's really hard for us to do that, right? We work really hard in life, and there's so much that needs to get done. I, I literally never have a Friday afternoon where I step away from it, and I'm like, sweet, I got all of the work done, you know? That was incredible. Um, maybe there's probably some jobs out there like that, but man, it's like, you finish and you're like, okay, there's so much more that could have been done. There's probably a whole lot more that should have been done, but this is where I got and that's okay. That's, it's good enough for now. I'm going to rest and recognize that I didn't get it done, but it didn't need to get done and I am finite. So I'm going to rest and I'm going to trust that it's going to be good enough. Honestly, with me taking a sabbatical, that was a lot of the heart of it, is you guys giving me the opportunity to just say, hey, Mark, great job. You do really good. I'm putting words in your mouth, but obviously we all know that's how you feel. And uh, Mark, great job. Literally couldn't be a better person in your role. You're incredible. And, you know, so I just appreciate your guys' sentiments there. Um, but like, you, you do so much, but you need to take a break, right? This doesn't depend on you. Like, that's kind of like the, the statement that a sabbatical makes is this, this thing does not exist or not exist based on your efforts, right? Keep working hard, but this is not what it's about. So I stepped back. I had to remember in my soul, like, this does not depend on me. Life will go on. And honestly, what happened when I was out for three months is things were amazing, right? You guys had a, I think you guys had more fun when I was gone than when I was not. That's what my wounded soul tells me. I'm talking to my therapist about it. We'll be fine, but... <laughs> Everything went great. Nathan did an amazing job. The elders did an amazing job. The staff did an amazing job. You guys were amazing. So like, it's, it's just this reminder of like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I tend to believe that it all is about how much I accomplish, but it really is about rest. So I'm giving you all this to help you see 
The idea of the Sabbath is, is the reality, it's the recognition that God is God and I'm not, right? God is infinite, but I am finite. God has all the strength in the world, but I am relatively weak. So um, there's this reminder built in, and the Sabbath becomes a way to stop striving and to, to remember God, to reconnect with God, to have a day to just rest and say, okay, Lord, it's about this connection with you. Okay, so now let's go back to Jesus. Jesus is there, and it is the Sabbath, and he's traveling with his disciples. And they go through the grain field, and they eat just a little bit of grain as they're walking through. And the Pharisees are like, hang on, why are you violating the Sabbath like this? Do you think, like, that, that's what's happening in the, in the Pharisees' mind. Do you think that what the Pharisees were, or what the disciples were doing and eating a little bit of grain was violating that principle of resting and remembering God? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. What the Pharisees are doing is they are focused not on the principle or the reality of rest and enjoyment of God. Um, they're, not, they're not focused on the, the principle or the reality. They're focusing on the law itself and the wording and how they do it. Um, they're, they're upset that the, the Pharisees, sorry, there's too many people. The Pharisees are upset that the disciples are, uh, are doing this whole thing in a way that violated how they thought the law should go. They're law-focused, they're legalistic, they're narrow-minded, and they're trying to, um, what the, the commentator R.T. France says, there's the law itself, and it's like the Pharisees are trying to build a fence around the law. So like, let's not violate the law, and to make sure that we don't even get close to violating the law, let's build a fence around it and make sure that um, not only can you not work on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees actually made a bunch of extra laws defining what's work and what's not work. Things like you're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath, and let's be really clear because ambiguity can be dangerous. So let's be clear. You can travel up to a thousand yards on the Sabbath, but no further than that. So they, they had everything spelled out in great detail about what you could or couldn't do. So there's the law, and there's a principle behind the law, but there's the fence that the Pharisees built around. So the disciples didn't do anything wrong, but they did step over the fence that these Pharisees had created. And what I see in all of that is um, this idea that as religious people, what we tend to do is we like to control things. We like to control situations. We like to control environments. We even often like to control other people. And so here they come, and they see Jesus and his disciples doing a thing, and they want to regain control over what's happening in all that. At this point, they're just questioning, but I think there's a fixation that comes with seeking control where we find um, our favorite standard of how it ought to be done, and we hold everyone to that standard. Not to the reality of the whole thing, but man, when we are holding someone to our standard and not God's standard, our standard, that's wrong. Like, we're wrong when we do that. We have to always keep coming back to Scripture, to the Bible, to say, okay, what does God actually say? What does God actually want from us in this? I think this is, this is going to sound maybe um, weird or controversial when I say it, but I'll explain I think sometimes we try to be more biblical than the Bible is, if that makes sense. It probably doesn't, but it's like this. You take a law like the Sabbath, and we're like, okay, yeah, the Sabbath. Let's, but we add so much to it because we're trying to be really biblical, so we add a whole bunch of stuff to it, and it's like, no, 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 let's go back to the script. Let's find what the heart of it is. So the reason I say that, Jesus, this is what Jesus does. Jesus takes them back to Scripture to help them understand better what's going on, because um, I think the Pharisees were trying to be more biblical than the Bible, okay? So here's what it says, and uh, this is Jesus' response now in verse 25. Sorry, I'm going to actually... Yep, verse 25. He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the, pre the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So David, uh, Jesus is taking them back. Look, look, you guys, you're missing the point. Let me take you back to Scripture and help you see the point. This is what Jesus is saying. So he uses the example of David. David was the, the king after God's own heart. He was not ruling yet. He had been anointed, but he was on the run from King Saul. And so David enters into the house of God, and there's bread that's there. Okay, now the bread is ceremonial bread. Like Leviticus 24 talks about what this bread is to be used for, how it's to be baked, when it's to be set out. So the whole thing is ceremony, and it's picturing something about uh, life with God. God and meant to be a way to kind of communicate with God, uh, communicate and connect with God. So David comes in in 1 Samuel 21, and he goes in, and he is on the run. He's in need, he and his men. So they're hungry, they need food, and he shows up in the house of God, but all there is is this ceremonial bread, okay? And so Jesus is not saying, okay, David came in, and the only thing was the ceremonial bread, but David knew that what's most impor- more important than anything else is the keeping of those ceremonies. Those ceremonies matter, they're important. And so David went hungry, and he and his men starved rather than break the rules of God, right? That's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is David was a human being and David came in and he was hungry and all there was was a ceremonial bread and so they ate the bread. Why? Because he says the, the law, the, the Sabbath, he's saying the Sabbath is made for human beings, right? Human beings were not made for the Sabbath. So he's saying what matters more is the people and not just the laws, right? The laws are there actually to help us connect to the God that it's all about, right? The God who gives the laws gives us the laws so that we can connect with him, so that we can tap into his design for who we are and how the world works. And so he's saying the law, every law is an invitation to the heart of God, an invitation to a closer connection with God. But we treat it like the point is the laws and man, people can suffer, people can go without, people can deal because the laws are the important thing and we're just here to keep the laws. Jesus reframes it. No, we're not just here to keep the laws. The laws are here for our benefit, for our shaping, for our forming. Now, I say that, and I'm certain that somebody in here is nervous because it does sound pretty liberal, doesn't it? Like, laws, like, who cares? Obedience to God, who cares? It's just about kind of us having fun and doing what we need to do, right? Like, so that's not what I'm saying. I'm not claiming that's what Jesus is saying, but the way Jesus is, he sure says things that de- definitely make us sound liberal at times. Um, and so I'd want to invite you, if you're nervous, don't worry. Jesus is going to say things that sound way too conservative sooner or later. And so you're going to be like, um, okay, yeah, good. Jesus is hardcore. I remember that. That's good. But the reality is, is like Jesus doesn't care about our boundaries. He's not worried about um, how we might perceive him. He's not worried about our modern categories of liberal and conservative. Jesus is simply trying to get us to have an actual encounter with God that goes back to the heart of what he created. And so the laws, my goodness, the laws, like the boundaries that we create are not meant to replace our enjoyment of Jesus. So if you find yourself um, on a walk and you're hungry and you can't simply satisfy your hunger with what's there, he's saying like, man, you, if your laws are keeping you from that, then like, man, you're missing it. That's not the point. Je- the irony is, Here's Jesus on earth. Jesus is God himself come to live amongst human beings, okay? So the reality of the Sabbath is take a day to remember God's presence. Remember your need for him and your trust and your enjoyment with him. That's what the Sabbath is about. So here's the disciples, and they're walking with literally God beside them, right? They're enjoying time with God, and the Pharisees are sitting here, no, 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 Jesus, you disciples, you guys are doing the Sabbath all wrong. It's about these rules. Make sure you keep them. They're missing the whole point. 
So that's why Jesus says, I think at the end there in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's about me, he's saying. I, like, you guys want control so bad that you're excluding the reality, missing the reality that this is supposed to be, that you would rather these people be hungry and sad rather than experiencing life with God. That's the whole point of it. So I think what happens to us is our desire for control often um, leads us to like destroy the reality of the thing that we're doing. So the disciplines, man, praying, fasting, um, observing Sabbath rest, those things are great. They're good tools to help us connect to God. But the, um, the desire to control what that looks like, control how it works, and especially to look at other people and make sure that we're controlling their experience of it, um, that can become a deadening thing. For the, for the Pharisees, it had become about the day itself rather than about um, people experiencing the rest, the principle, the reality behind it. So as an example, when I was on sabbatical, I had, uh, I had the gift of a lot of time. And I got to spend my days, and I knew I, knew I did not want to spend all day on Netflix or whatever. So I, um, I intentionally had this rhythm of prayer and reading and things like that that I built in. It was delightful. But one of the things I found is when you're sitting there and you're trying to pray and your phone is in your pocket, my goodness, it's easy to pull that thing out and you're, you're scrolling, you're like, I don't know, what do you even do on your phones? But we do. We all are there. Like, and um, so... My iPhone has features, uh, like focus features. So you turn on a focus, and it lets you control, like, okay, I can open this app, but not that app, you know? And, uh, and, and somebody can contact me, but not that other person. Obviously, I had all of you able to contact me on my phone. It was the other people that I didn't want contacting me. And, um, and so what, what it did is it just helped. Like, it helped me have time to be with the Lord and undistracted. And when I would pick up my phone, um, I could use my, like, Bible study apps or a couple of other things. But when I would, you know, go to click on Instagram or whatever, right, it's not there. And I'm like, okay, that's right. I'm not trying to do that right now. So it was a great tool. So the, the focus features on my iPhone became this great way for me to remember what I was trying to do and to really connect with God. It was huge. I would just say that. It was huge. And so I highly recommend to you guys, those are there on your iPhone. I assume Android has a clunky your way of doing the same thing, and you're welcome to figure that out. <clears throat> it was awesome. So here's the mistake that I, that I could make, and that I think this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. The mistake would be if I assumed that everybody has to use the focus feature on their phone. If you're, are you getting up in the morning and not turning on the focus thing on your phone? You guys, do you even care about your relationship with God? Like that's, I think that's the problem that the Pharisees were doing. This is a way to connect with God, but it becomes about the thing itself, right? Or the other problem with that is if I set the focus on my phone, and I'm not looking at the other things, and then I think, okay, great. I turn that on. I've connected with God. Beautiful, right? I use it as a replacement for the thing that it's meant to facilitate. So as we talk about things like fasting, reading your Bible, praying, um, observing the Sabbath, taking that rest, all of those things are meant to point us to a connection with the God of the universe that loves us and invites us to experience rest with him. They're not meant to be a replacement for it. They're not be, meant to be a way to ostracize somebody else. Um, and so we're, we're wrong when we try to control other people with these good things. So I think control, control makes us fixated. We want this longing, this desire to control ourselves and the people around us and our environments. And it makes us fixated on all the wrong things. And we miss the heart of it. All right, let's jump into chapter three and make huge progress in our uh, study of Mark. Here we go. Mark chapter three, the, the Pharisees are always obliging us and giving us new examples of what not to do. So here we go again. Uh, verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there who, with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to kill. But the, they were silent. The Pharisees were silent. So the disciples, or the, the Pharisees are there. And they're in the synagogue. Jesus comes in. The synagogue was like a church environment where they're, they're reading uh, the law together. They're commenting on it. They're praying together. They're probably singing some psalms and things like that. So it's a church environment. And they're, they are there. And the, the Pharisees now, they've been, they've been asking questions of Jesus. Just kind of, hey, what's going on with this? What's with that? We, we can discern like a tone that they brought to it that religious people are good at. But now it's, it's gone further than just asking questions. And now they're actually laying a trap for Jesus, okay? So they're there. They're watching him. They're going to see what he does. And, and there, there's a guy in the synagogue that has a, a withered hand. So who knows exactly what the problem is with his hand, but his hand's not functional. And they're there, and I don't know. Maybe that guy happened to be there that day. And the, and the Pharisees are like, perfect, this guy's here. Maybe they went out and recruited the guy and made sure that he was there. I don't know, but either way, I, the desire for control led them to be just so inhuman, so callous, so um, non-compassionate with this person because they looked. I can just picture the, the Pharisees looking and they see Jesus and they see this guy and they're like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. This guy's, they see this man who's suffering, who's hurting, right? They, like they, in that day and age, like that would be really hard not to have a hand. And so they're like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. We're going to put this guy here and we're going to see what Jesus does. It, it's crazy to me. They're not even like asking can Jesus heal this guy? Like, is he, is it, they're like, okay, we know Jesus is, does this stuff. He heals people. So we're going to try to get him to do it in a way that violates the law so that we can get him. You know, they're trying to accuse Jesus. And this person becomes not a suffering human being in need of compassion and love and belonging, but this man becomes now a test to see if we can trip up Jesus and get him into trouble with our laws. There's no compassion at all. And so Jesus reframes it. First, we see Jesus just falling right into their trap, right? So they're watching, and you see Jesus like, Jesus, is a trap. Get out of there. And he's like, come on up here. And he calls the man up. And we're like, oh no, Jesus, you're going to do it. You're going to be compassionate. You're going to heal this person. You're going to get into all kinds of trouble. Jesus brings him up, and he just asks the question. He reframes the whole thing. It's no longer about um, the Sabbath or whatever. He's simply saying, hey, on the Sabbath day, is it okay to do good, or should we do harm on the Sabbath? Is it okay to give life, or should we kill on the Sabbath? The, the irony is when Jesus reframes it, I, I don't think these Pharisees were thinking at all about like good versus harm. I think they're just trying to get Jesus to break a rule. Um, they're thinking about rules, not about life and death and good and harm and those kinds of things. But the irony is that the response that the Pharisees will have to this is they're actually going to end this encounter on the Sabbath plotting how to destroy Jesus. So definitely they're messed up here. And Jesus is exposing that, reframing the whole thing around, hey, the 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 the, the, the Sabbath is not about avoiding doing work in itself as though that's the entire goal. No, it's about goodness. It's about grace. It's about God. It's about enjoying his presence. And so Jesus is going to use the Sabbath uh, for something different. So Jesus asked the question. Uh, the Pharisees are silent. I picture them like, you know, if you were trying to like trap an animal or something. I don't know. I live in the city. And, uh, and the animal's kind of coming and it's nibbling on the bait and you're like, just sitting there quietly, like, oh my gosh, it's going to eat, it's going to fall into the trap. Like, you're like quiet. To let, it's like, I picture the Pharisees just like, oh, he's going to do it, and they don't answer. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he does pretty much what I would expect him to do. Verse 5, he looked around at them with, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus goes ahead and heals the man. 
knowing full well that it's a trap and everything else. But here Jesus does. And what, the first thing that it says, though, is he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken over their hardness of heart. So he's like looking at these people that are religious leaders. They're supposed to be shepherds of this group of people to help them grow spiritually and all this. And he looks at them and he sees they don't care at all about this man who's suffering. They just want to trap Jesus and, and get on him for breaking a rule that they're trying to set up a scenario. And Jesus is heartbroken. He's like, but your, your hearts are so hard. Like, what's go, like, why can't you just be compassionate? Why can't you just uh, follow God in the ways that he's inviting you to? He's heartbroken over that. And also he's angry. He's angry looking at this person that's suffering and, and he's being used as bait for this religious trap they're setting. He's angry that they would so mistreat somebody like this. Unfortunately, like you would think, you would hope, Jesus fixed all this and it stopped. But if you look at century after century of church history, I think we have a tendency in Christianity is probably in every religion to take religious rules, religious things, and use them. And, and people get hurt all the time in religious settings. Um, and so here they are just using that. Uh, when, when our religious convictions cause us to be inhuman and in how we interact with people, there's a problem, right? We're doing the whole thing wrong. So they were fixated. They became inhuman in the whole thing. When you, uh, when, it, when a person graduates from med school, I'm told, um, it's quite an accomplishment, but when they, when they graduate from med school, they um, recite, they used to recite the Hippocratic Oath, okay? So you make the pledge back from Hippocrates uh, back in the day, and, um, and now I'm told that it's like a version of it. Like they, they, the school has their own version, or you kind of make your own version. But bottom line in all of it is when you graduate med school, you, you give this oath that basically says, I'm here to help people and not to harm people, okay? Like I'm not here to impose what I want on the patient. I'm here to help the patient get what they need and, and uh, go towards life and not towards death. Okay, so that's all kind of in the Hippocratic Oath and in whatever versions of it. Um, I think that we as Christians, we as a church should have like a Hippocratic feel about us where our point of existing is not to make sure that everybody's like on point or on task. Our goal in existing is like that Hippocratic thing of like, we want to do good. We want to bring life to people, right? We're here to bless people and not to harm them. Um, but unfortunately, I think that slips away from us in the church. We miss the point. We, we distort the plot of the whole thing, and it becomes more a way to control people. But God is a God that is for people. The most famous verse in the Bible is John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So the, the, the God that we serve and worship is for us, wants us, longs for us, describes himself as a shepherd that goes, leaves 99 sheep to go find the one that's lost and bring him in. Like that's the heart of the God that we serve. And so if we are followers of that God, we should be a Hippocratic type of a people that are there for healing and not for harm. And it's, it's a huge misrepresentation of what we're supposed to be about when we go around trying to control everyone's experience, trying to make sure everyone falls in line and being inhuman to the people around us in our effort to perpetuate our version of spirituality or something like that. And the Pharisees are just too perfect of an example of the whole thing. They went out immediately, left the church service, go and they find the Herodians, which are like supporters of King Herod. So it represents a compromise with like the, the ruling class and they want power rather than seeking to help people. So they go and they make this, this unnatural ally with the Herodians to try to be like, hey, we've got to get control spiritually. If we have to compromise with people that have power politically in order to do that, we're in. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so let's just make whatever deal, to, whatever it takes to regain control. We're going to see that thread throughout the Gospels. Do you think that the religious leaders were about religious flourishing for people, but actually they were about power and they were about control, and so they leave in, in pursuit of control and power um, 
eventually we're going to see this leads to the death of Jesus. Okay, so this is what I want us to see. This desire to control that fixates us, uh, that leads to inhuman treatment of the people around us. And I want us to see now a contrast. We're going to look at just a few verses, and we're going to do it pretty briefly in these next verses. But I want you to see the, the contrast. There was a tidy environment that the Pharisees created, right? Hey, if you're stepping into our church, you're going to do things our way, okay? You're going you're gonna to believe what we believe. We're going to tell you what to do and not to do. You're going to follow the rules if you're here. So it led to a nice, tidy, clear. There's a lot of clarity. Um, there's not a lot of ambiguity about what's going on. This is what it looks like. So they had everything refined and tidy in this whole thing. By contrast, Jesus then leaves this setting, this tidy setting. And watch what happens when Jesus leaves here. This is in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases passed around him to touch him pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. When I read this, like in juxtaposition to what the Pharisees were controlling in their environment, I see chaos in what Jesus goes out into, you know? He goes out of the sea and it's like people are coming from everywhere. Like all those place names just show show people are coming from everywhere. And there's been rumors about what Jesus has done. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's forgiving sins. And people are like... I'm in. Like, I've got to go see what's going on with Jesus. So much so, they're just coming from everywhere to see him. And Jesus is like, man, they're pressing all around me. They're, they're, they're coming with the belief, apparently, that if I can even just touch Jesus, then like, I'll be fixed. I'll be healed. Like, my physical stuff will be healed. My spiritual stuff, we're seeing demons get cast out. Um, like, like the, the, the weights that I'm carrying and everything that's restricting me, if I could even just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. And that leads Jesus to be like, guys, get a boat ready. I can't even stay on the shore because they're just pressing around. I need to talk to these people. I need to heal them, but like, let's make sure they don't crush me in the process. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of chaos as Jesus just steps out of that neat, tidy religious environment where it's so controlled that nothing can really happen. And he steps out along the sea and people are just coming and they're finding life in Jesus. And man, I read that and it just, it, it like, it does something to my heart. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think that in the church, we have a tendency to be more on the controlling side of things. Like, I think we, we tend to even, like, commercialize spirituality to the point where it's like, um, okay, what's our brand of Christianity that we're going to go for in this church? How are we going to schedule it, right? How are we going to structure it? How are we going to make sure that everyone, like, how are we going to make sure that this feels like a family to people, or that we feel like we're connected? And I, I just want to step back from that and be like, no, 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 I don't want to I don't want to create the feel of family. I want us to be a family, you know? Like, I don't want to create the feeling of connecting with God. I want us to be connected to God. And I, so I don't know in the modern church what this looks like exactly, but I, I have to just confess, I feel like often what it is is we're trying to, like, get people to feel like what they must have felt like in the, Old Test, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I just feel like, man, if Jesus is here, like Jesus is here. So Jesus was there, but Jesus is also still here. And so um, I want us to be more, less like the Pharisees and more like these people that are just like, okay, I heard that Jesus is heading out to the sea. Like, let's go. Let's fight, figure out how we can get there. If we can even just be around him, if we can even just touch him. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I, I do know this. I know that like, I know you need an encounter with Jesus. I know that. Like if you've followed Jesus your entire life, that's beautiful. 
If you haven't taken a single step in your relationship with Jesus, that also is like you, both of us need uh, Jesus, a touch from him, a word from him or something. And, and what I know is this, you can find that here. Like I, th- that's like, that's why I do what I do is like, I love trying to help facilitate people to have a connection with Jesus. But I'm telling you that like when you're here and when we're singing songs in a minute, you can connect with Jesus right then. The invitation is there and he's there. The songs will not magically do it, but your heart is invited to reach out and connect to him. When you go home today, um, presumably there's a Bible in your house somewhere. And if there's not, there's one on your phone. You can turn off the focus feature to find the Bible, okay? And I'm just saying, like, these people were traveling so far just to touch Jesus, to have an encounter. And I'm saying, you can touch Jesus today. Like, he's literally there. You can stop and you can pray and you can just say whatever is on your heart to say. There's no formula for prayer that's going to make it successful or not. But, like, he's there and he cares. Um, Your Bible is there. You could read something about Jesus in the Bible, and that's a point of connection. I... I would love for us, I would rather us have the chaotic life that I think people were experiencing when they went to find Jesus at all cost, in whatever place, in whatever mess, like just do it. If, if Jesus has to escape from the crowds of what we're doing as we're flooding to him, I would rather that, I think he would rather that um, than us just hang out in those dead spaces as we're trying to control and commercialize and overstructure everything. The, the, the Pharisees were so worried about their spaces and the rules and meanwhile, Jesus was just continuing to show compassion. Wherever people were that were, were in need, he was there. It is not about staying within the boundaries, I don't think. I think it's about walking beside him. Jesus, what we'll find is when we, when we let go of our need for everything to be controlled and everything to be regulated, I think what we find is Jesus, we, we follow Jesus, we walk beside him, and we think, man, this is chaotic, this is crazy, but we find there's life, there's obedience, there's structure, there's, there's beauty in all of it. Um, Jesus calls us to the most radical obedience anyone's ever seen. Jesus will be really intense in calling us to obedience. So it's not about like just saying, hey, do whatever you want. That's really not what I'm saying. It's really not what Jesus Jesus is saying, but it's saying, hey, stop worrying about control over the whole thing. Stop worrying about being tidy about the whole thing. Stop trying to control how everyone else does the thing, and let's find every impulse to life that we can find in ourselves and say, I need to connect with you, Lord, in in this somehow. Would you help me do it? And let's be there to help each other doing it. I, I don't know what it looks like, but I want to um, I want to end this whole thing with a little a little parable. Okay, so N.T. Wright um, tells this story, a fictional story, a parable about a town where there's all these mountain springs, okay? So in the, in the town, there's all these springs, so there's like fresh water available to people in these springs. But the town decides, like, this is, this is a little unorganized and chaotic, right? Just having water and, like, people are getting it at different times and different ways. So, like, let's make sure we fix this. So they paved over all the springs, and they put in this system of pipes and everything so that everyone gets the water from the government in the same amount and the ways that they need it and everything else. And so it's just controlled, right? There's still water for people, but it is controlled, and they've capped all the springs. Well, time goes on. Actually, a lot of time goes on. And then actually, eventually, the concrete on these springs begins to crack, and water just starts coming out and flooding into the streets. And it's like, it's a mess, you know? It's like, it's like muddy water, water's everywhere, but people have been so eager um, to get back to, like, the real water from the source rather than the water from these pipes and everything else that they are just, like, drinking water wherever they can find it, okay? And they're just in the streets and drinking it, and they're going after it. So let me, let me back up. N.T. Wright's telling this story as an example of what happened in the 20th century. So spiritual, spirituality, people were pretty attuned to during the Middle Ages and everything. But the Enlightenment came, tried to use science to explain, like, this is why religion is dumb and you don't need it anymore. So we capped all the springs, and it's like, you don't need spirituality for your life. 
But what we've seen at the end of the 20th century and definitely in this 21st century is people can't live like that. We can pretend like we can live without our spiritual lives turned on, but we have this hunger. I think we see it all over the place in society. It's in the church and it's outside the church where we're just hungry for like something deeper, something spiritual. Like, like, like we're into aliens now, you guys. Like society is just like something that's not uh, provable or whatever. Like that's what I need. And so he's saying, People have gotten into um, spirituality and and um, and new new age type stuff and and um, and Buddhism and whatever it is, belief in aliens and whatever it is. If you, by the way, we can talk about it legitimately. If you believe in aliens, um, I think there's a path to that, but we have to talk about it. I've got some got some guidelines and some rules I want to make sure you see. But he's saying we've just gone crazy as a society now of like any way to get spirituality, let's do it. And what what is he right suggesting? What I'm suggesting is. There's a healthy way to drink the water and there's an unhealthy way. But the healthy way is not for us to control it for everybody and say, hey, this and only this. You've got to do it exactly like I do. You've got to set the focus feature on your phone. You've got to spend uh, uh, an hour of time in the Bible every single morning. Otherwise, like, it, that's not what it's about. It's about saying you were designed to drink from those springs, man. And those springs are there and they're healthy. Some of the water we're drinking is unhealthy. And, and the only way that we can fix it, let's be in relationship with each other. Let's talk about like how do we find the pure water, the, the, the good living water that is Jesus himself. How do we find that? How do we help each other um, with it? That, that's what I want. It's not about controlling it. It's about learning to find the source of that water and to just drink it in at every way that we can. So, Let's, let's focus on the principles and the reality rather than on the rules. Let's not get fixated. Let's not get inhuman with it. Um, let's follow Jesus in everything he leads us to. Let's let his, uh, the compassion of Jesus lead us to, um, man, structure ourselves and let's have a Sabbath and a day of rest. But if we see somebody that's in need, let's serve and bless that person, even if it is like our Sabbath day, because that's where Jesus leads us. Let's let our compassion and the life that's in Jesus lead us into something a little more chaotic than what we've experienced. I when I, when I worship, man, I, um, I love to sing to the Lord. I love what we're doing. I come from a much more like fundamentalist background. And so some of you guys, I've, I've shared this before, some of you guys make me really uncomfortable. I've, I've gotten myself to this place, okay, when we're worshiping. Um, but some of you guys, man, I don't, I don't know. It's like crazy uh, how you do your, your hands. I'm like, whew, it makes me uncomfortable. <clears throat> um, so I, I, am, I am growing in all, but I'm just saying, guys, let's find life, however we find life. Like he's there. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up, and we're going to sing. And I'm just, I'm just going to encourage you, like, if your, heart, if your heart's not there, it's okay. Just talk, talk to God about the fact that your heart's not there. Um, but let's just recognize that there's an invitation in this moment to talk to the God who made it all, the God who loves you, the God who's inviting you, the God who's seeking you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for um, these reminders in this passage, um, as we've been following along the life of Jesus, thank you for these reminders that you love us and you care for us. Lord, thank you. Um, just personally, Lord, I confess my, my tendency to want to control, my tendency for it all to have to make perfect sense, my tendency to see that it should be like this and not like that. And Lord, I pray that you would keep us within the bounds of your truth. But Lord, in doing that, pull us into the depth of the reality that we're trying to experience. Lord, everything about our church family that is deadening or unnecessarily restrictive, I pray that you would show us those things. Lead us into a, a better uh, experience of who you are and your grace. Lord, help us to draw closer and closer to your heart and the reality. And Lord, as we uh, prepare ourselves now to sing to you, I just pray, Lord, may that invitation to connect with you now, may, may that be something that our souls deep down can receive. 
We'd recognize your presence here. We'd recognize your care for us in our lives and, uh, and just respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.